Welcome to this episode of the Make It Happen Show. Before we dive in, I can't wait to tell you about our new tool that's been coined the Myers-Briggs of Business. At The Entourage, we've been working hard over the past year to develop a new benchmarking tool that'll give business owners in every industry a 54-point diagnosis of their business and unrivaled visibility into its performance. We're calling it the Business Growth Profile, and it's a first of its kind. The only tool that, in as little as 15 minutes, will deep dive into every function of your business to identify the biggest opportunities for growth. And for a limited time only, we're letting business owners fill in their profile and get their results for free. Head to www.the-entourage.com forward slash profile to fill in your very own business growth profile. If you're a business owner who wants to know how your business stands today and how to grow it tomorrow, then the business growth profile is for you. That address again is www.the-entourage.com forward slash profile. And now let's get on with the show. Today we're joined by my good friend, David Andrew. He's an Australian entrepreneur trying to reduce the amount of sugar on our shelves. We talk about what it takes to build a new product from scratch. Then how to get it out there, how to get distribution, how to get it on the supermarket shelf. This episode is for you if you do want to create a new product and you want to learn what it takes. Let's get into it. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Make It Happen Show. I'm Tim Morris from The Entourage, joined here by David Andrew. Now Dave's one of my really old great mates. He's the founder of Naked Life Sparkling and Sugar Freezies. And you're on a mission to take 500 tonnes of sugar out of the diet of Australian kids. Yep. How on earth are you going to make that happen? That's pretty simple, Tim. Good products that actually taste good, that customers want, that are 100% natural. And So what does 100% natural mean? Well, it means that everything that is in our product starts as, as a plant, so none of these artificial chemicals and all that type of stuff. So it's sort of, luckily, that's where the world's going, so there's far more supply of interesting, you know, new natural products that we mm-hmm. can use, and, you know, it's, it's, it's getting better and better on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So of, of stuff that's on the shelves, yep. like, how much of it has artificial stuff in it? Oh, geez, if I look at the, the soft drink side of things, if you walk down... Uh, like one of the supermarket shelves, probably 80% of the actual sugar-free stuff, probably more than that, is artificially sweetened. So, And that's wow. not even including preservatives, colours, all that type of stuff. I'm yeah. just talking artificial sweeteners. So it's a really, it's a small part of the market, but it's definitely growing. What is an artificial sweetener? It literally is a fine, white, little powdered substance. It's about 500 times sweeter than sugar and is literally made in a lab. Yeah, just kind of think of it as kind of like meth. <laughs> okay, that's a really great image to have in my mind next time I'm buying something. Well, it's, it's the kind of thing that you have to create because people need to realise that these types of things that are actually um, that are in in your food actually are you know very synthetic, um, synthetically made, and and without having that picture of the reality, sometimes you don't even realise mm. that. Yeah, it's funny because like the so fat used to be the bad guy. Uh, and now sugar is the bad guy, but in most cases we're replacing that with stuff that is like meth from the lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, until now though, because it's, there's like, if we have a look at what there is out there, there's stevia, which is, um, you know, it just comes from a plant and from Peru, and that's you know, been used for centuries to sweeten things. You know, there's, there's other things that, um, like another one called monk fruit that's been used in China for, for, for hundreds of years to sweeten stuff. So, you know, it's, like with anything, now that people are starting to to demand this stuff, mm. the you know suppliers are 
coming to the to the table with with you know with new things that we can use to make it naturally sweetened. So, I, and the beauty of it is as well, people's taste buds are becoming a bit less sweet. And mm-hmm. so, in actual fact, you don't have to target something which is 100% same sweetness as, sh- as sugar because people find that a little bit too sweet these days. So now you can set it at 80% and mm-hmm. go, all right, it's mm. to be about 80% as sweet as sugar and people are going to be happy with it. And I think not just that, like, then to actually make it taste good, you, it's kind of like one of those old um, graphic equalizers in music where, like, the moment you change a bit of flavour or sweetness, you've got to re- reformulate everything. So mm. it's it just takes um, a real... Uh, how do I explain you've just got to be really dedicated to make something that's going to taste amazing and you will get there but you know with our raspberry flavor for example we had to try like 20 different types of raspberry flavors to get one that's suited Mm. because so it's it's a there's a lot to it but it's also a bit of a labor of love yeah so actually let's go back let's go back right to the early days of naked life particularly yep um how did you do the product development how did you how did you come up with the flavors what was the process where were you you like mad scientists working away or what was the process Definitely mad scientist, um, and so gels with uh, who you are. Yeah, yeah look, <laughs> but also it's just you know I worked with a couple of different flavour technologists, so to speak, and you know I had a bit background working with stevia and real, and I, you know, it, I'm pretty I've got a pretty sensitive palate, so when I was working with different uh, outsourced technologists, I found that what they thought was okay to me wasn't okay, mm. and so I just went back to first principle and just got all the different flavours that were out there and just and a soda stream and you know all the ingredients and you know didn't put a lab coat coat on but basically just had the office set up and was just playing around with everything just going and just after a while and, and just after months and months yeah. just, you just get there and so how many uh, how many flavors or levers are you playing with like per yeah. flavor yeah good question um you might have three or four different flavours yep. in, in, in your drink. Then you've got the amount of acid you've got, you've got the different sweetness, mm-hmm. and then you've got... Um, and it's not just that, it's also about the profile of how it tastes in your mouth. So often people can be one-dimensional when they're developing products and go mm. and really focus on the fact that, oh, everyone, everyone's concerned about how sweet it is, but they might miss something such as the mouthfeel of your product, which is mm. actually... You know, your customers won't even tell you that that's important because they don't know that it's important. Mm. So you need to actually know these things beforehand. The only other people I ever hear talk about mouthfeel are <laughs> people who are really serious about wine. Well, it's exactly the same. So what I found is with this, I spoke to a few winemakers to understand how they actually judge their palates of things. So mm. I figure that they're the ones who really understand how, like, they've got a language about it. So when I was first developing this, I didn't have a language of how to actually t- describe what I what what I wanted or what I needed. So mm-hmm. I spoke to a few winemakers, and they take you through the body and all these, you know, the body of it, the sort of the mouth feel, the 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 you know the acidity, the tartness, and all this type of stuff. And I started building a language of how to explain what I wanted and then how mm. to change it so so and would you recommend that is if someone wanted to go into food or beverage because we are actually seeing quite a few entrepreneurial success stories in this area mm. if someone wanted to go into it would that be one of the first steps develop a language to kind of articulate what you think you want or would you start somewhere else uh, I think yeah I think you'd start with at least having an understanding of what you feel the end product should look like so mm-hmm. You know, with me, I had the goal here of it needed to taste, you know, close enough to a normal soft drink. So I didn't start with sugar-free soft drinks as my goal. I started with the goal of it had to taste similar to normal 
sugar, with, you know, soft drink with sugar in it. Mm. So then when you're working through things, you can understand when you're comparing it. I was never comparing um, sugar-free to sugar-free. I was comparing sugar-free to sugar. So mm. I'd, I'd always be able to understand where it was lacking. Mm -hmm. And so I think more so having an end goal of what you're wanting to achieve or replicate mm -hmm. and then you know um, and then making sure you're always comparing apples to apples and that will then teach you what you need to know so it's like you know at first I was in unknown unknowns mm -hmm. and then I realized um, you know what I need to figure out and then you figure that out mm -hmm. and then you just keep on going mm -hmm. so all right so let's go from uh, with the lab coat, that's the image <laughs> in my mind, yes. mixing away, coming yep. up with these flavours. I remember when you had the first flavours. Yeah. What's the next step? Like, how do you actually take it from being a concept that you've got a, like something in a bottle that you're putting there yourself mm -hmm. into actually a product that you can start selling? Um, our first is just having an actual, um, an actual uh, prototype. So something yep. which actually tastes good. So for me, I went and sourced some, uh, some bottles that looked like the bottles that I actually wanted to put them in and and bought myself a homebrew bottler and, mm -hmm. and all this type of stuff. And so the, the lab coat then turned to, I bought a homebrew setup, which had all the kegs and all the other stuff. So I could actually bottle lots of samples because to make just like one or two samples is pretty expensive. So I thought, all right, I'll get a setup where I could make a hundred samples of each. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be a homebrew kit. Mm -hmm. And so I did all of that, bottled it all up, got the, all the labels printed. And then the, the next step then is actually having, um, it has to look, professional so it mm -hmm. can't look it has to look the opposite of what you actually are so you might be <laughs> in a lab coat at home but the moment you actually walk into your first distributor you've got to have great presentations you know big a2 boards of, of it printed and lifestyle shots and because because the moment you walk in there if you don't do that they just assume you're just someone else who's got an idea but doesn't have the follow through gotcha. and so you know because there are a few levers that a distributor, for example, is going to look at, and one of which is how much are they going to back this product that they've got with marketing, and, and how much do they even understand that that's important. So mm -hmm. you can just walk up with the greatest product in the world, which tastes amazing, but nothing else, you, you're not even going to get a meeting. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so a distributor is someone that goes and then represents your product to a whole bunch of wholesalers and retailers, is that correct? Yeah, correct. And yeah. they're kind of the wholesaler as well. So they buy it off you, you give them their margin, and then they hold the stock risk mm -hmm. and, and the, the, the working capital, and then they go and on sell it as well. Yeah, to their network that they to already have. To their network have. that yeah. they already have. And is that, uh, so that's definitely the path that you've taken. So you go through a distribution sales model. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's, well, you obviously chose it. You think it's the best pathway for big distribution. Is, is yes. it the only pathway for a product of this type? Or are there other avenues that someone could take? Oh, there's, like, it, it all relates on to how you can most quickly get the bodies on the ground knocking on the doors of the stores you want to be in. So mm -hmm. if, for example, you wanted to raise capital straight away and put your own person with a van in every single state of Australia and do that, so then they were focused, that would probably be a faster payback period, but mm. it's going to cost millions of bucks. Yeah, so you've got to go out and pitch right And you've got to go out and pitch from the beginning. Mm. So what I did with this, which is a very common route, is you, you look for a state-based distributor, um, just look for state-based distributors, mm -hmm. and then you, know, you pitch it into them. And generally, once you get one on board, they'll help you introduce you to others mm. around the states. And so it's like with anything, it's about getting your first runs on the board. And once you've got that, you know, life's a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. So you've gone, you've, you've got a good prototype, it tastes mm -hmm. good, yep. you've branded it well, yes. you've got all the collateral, mm -hmm. and then it's out on the road, pitching to distributors, and they'll take you on, and they'll get, get it out in the stores. And they'll get it out in the stores. You need to get in and support it um, pretty aggressively on the ground. So each of the distributors will ask you to go into the stores with them and go on, on, on the road with their, with their reps and everything to help sell it in. So you've got to, like, 
one thing I learned pretty quickly is if you are going to expand into you know state by state distribution, it's probably worth having you know even part time someone on the ground in each of the states mm-hmm. to help support it because the distributors will give you as much love as you give to them. Mm-hmm. So the moment mm-hmm. you stop giving them love, someone some other pro- person with a product who's going to give them love will come in and do it. These fickle distributors. Fickle distributors. So what? Who are great that? though, by the way. Thank you, distributors. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is super interesting because uh, a lot of entrepreneurs want to get into the product side of business yeah. like there's something really really um, satisfying I think about making something and getting it out there mm-hmm. but it's a pretty opaque world and so so digging into like how to do this I think super super interesting yeah and it's sort of the it, you can kind of see it at different layers because there's like there's you can have your state-based distributors or, or the other way is is you go in and you just go super hard and you go straight to the supermarkets so mm-hmm. if, if you had a but all that's predicated on being able to have the right production mm-hmm. that can scale up and the right suppliers who can scale up. Because that's one of the first questions that either the supermarkets or big distributors will ask is, is how, much, how quickly can you scale up to being 10 times the size mm-hmm. of this? Mm-hmm. And so if you can't answer that, so if, you're still, if I'm still bottling my 100 bottles in my own lab coat, <laughs> then you know, you're, already, uh, you're, already, <laughs> you're already in a bit of trouble. So one of the first pitches that I did here before I even got my distributors was to one of the largest contract bottles in Australia. So that was my first proper pitch was like, you know, and I had a full presentation for it, like, guys, oh, this is where the market's going. This is where I think this could be. And, you know, they've got, they've got minimum volume runs that there was no way that I was going to be able to meet. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> this is, you know, so I sold them the right story and then told them that this is the level I want to be, but if we do things right, we could work together. And they took a punt on mm. me, which allowed me to get the pricing where I needed to get it to be able to get the distributors. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's there's lots of things that you're ratcheting up here at yeah, the same time. So you're, absolutely. so you're working on supply, at least getting them to say, yes, we will commit to helping with your supply, yep. with your production. Then you're working with the distributors, mm-hmm. and then you're building your capability. And then now you do talk to the supermarkets, you are in supermarkets. Yes. How, how did that process go? Um, very similar to the initial process with, uh, with the distributors. Like One of the first distributors I got, they wouldn't take my call or... They wouldn't actually, uh, you know, they get hit or hit on by hundreds of people a week. So I actually just went and sat in their foyer for three days straight with my <laughs> products. And every time they'd walk past, I'd just be there just going. And then after the third day, it's like, you're not going anywhere, are you? I'm like, nope. And so they finally <laughs> took my meeting, you know. And so it's sort of, and the supermarkets are something similar. Like, you know, the, the first time I met them, though, was doing trade shows. So you do your trade shows. They walk the floor. Everyone's chasing around after them and everything. But if you've got... A product that stands out enough, they'll actually come past, have a look, want to try it, and that's that's how I met um, some of the first uh, some of the first ones. And but even then, it was the long burn after after that. You know, lots yep. of meetings. There's so many um, operational elements that, as a company, if you can't uh, fulfil that, it's not even worth going to the supermarkets. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of if I knew what I knew now mm-hmm. when about working with the supermarkets that I did two years ago. Um, I probably would have gone straight to the supermarkets. Okay. You know? I thought you were going to say, if you knew what you know now, you wouldn't have even approached them back then. I'm like, that's blind optimism that so many entrepreneurs have. They go, if I, if I knew how hard it was going to be, I wouldn't have done it. But they do it because they didn't know. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's definitely an element of that. I think that's what <laughs> that's what gets you to being able to understand what to do is all mm. the pain of putting all those things in place. And it's sort of, but now you've come out the other side. Like having strong operations and a strong operational team and strong systems and processes is just absolutely critical. Yeah. Um, you know, because you don't. For an example, if if you for, if you have the wrong paperwork that was and you know dated to be picked up 
from your distribution center the day before instead of the next day, they'll take it all the way there and then they'll reject it, take it all the way back and mm. you're, you're, down, you're down thousands of bucks mm. before you even blink. And that's big for a small business. That's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Well, something you touched on early uh, was about branding and the importance yes. of putting on a, a really, like presenting the product really, really well. Yeah. Now, uh, this product, Naked Life, has gone through a couple of evolutions of yes. the visual branding. Yeah. Um, what are the things you've learned along the way around branding? Really good question. I think the first thing I'd say is don't blindly trust your graphic designer. So mm -hmm. graphic designers can be some of the biggest bullies going around because all they want to do is make their thing look so aesthetically amazing. <laughs> um, however, that's often at odds as to with what's going to jump off the shelf. Okay. So you can see here, you know, the hierarchy of our drinks. I'm not sure if you can actually see it there, but the sugar-free needs to stand out now. If you try and ask a graphic designer to make sugar-free stand out, they'll make it so small because it doesn't lose, otherwise it doesn't look good and you keep on fighting with them and fighting with them and then all of a sudden you just have to, you know, often with me I've had to say, okay, we've been through three evolutions, it now needs to be this big and it can't be smaller than that. Mm. And, and oh, okay, because what happens is it, it ruins the aesthetic a little bit, so to speak. <laughs> and so the first time I had something made, um, I listened to the graphic design, so I was very young, naive in, in this, in how it all worked, and thought, okay, well, they know because they've done lots of these products. But I ended up with something where the, it looked amazing, but you couldn't really tell what it was. You couldn't really mm. tell the functional benefits of it. So I had to change it a few times, and it turns out in the end, the, the whole aesthetic we worked with didn't actually work with being able to do the callouts we wanted. So we mm. then had to do a full shift, mm. and that's a painful shift to make because. The only reason you realise you're making that you need to change is because either you're not making sales or distributors aren't taking you on board, all mm. these things. So at mm -hmm. some stage, you sort of sit and just go, all right, bite the bullet and rebrand. A really interesting point through that is you're like, oh, you, you thought, oh, they've got a lot of experience. But yes. you're making a sugar-free soft drink, which yeah. is very, very rare, right? Mm -hmm. There's barely anyone's out there. Mm -hmm. and so they actually don't have the experience in that specific product. No, no, they don't, and that's like. But I think when you've got so many things that you're trying to manage at any one time, you kind of yearn for a bit of certainty mm. because if someone comes and says, "Oh yeah, I've done this so many times, this is going to work," it's just one less thing you have to think about. But that's yeah. a real lesson for me because if you look at some of the critical things like managing the, you know, making sure that your operations are being ticked off in a methodical manner and making sure that your branding has the specific call-outs that are important to your customer are the two main things that I'd say you need to worry about and the other stuff you can, you can give to someone else. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, otherwise it's, you just go through a lot of pain. So that was a, and the, and the other thing is also make sure you do your trademark searches on what else is, is <laughs> out there bring this up. <laughs> in, in, uh, in the market because you might make something that looks really good and you might think it's close to, uh, you know, you might think that it's not close to anything, but then you get a letter. Are you talking about the tonic water? No, I'm not talking about anything specifically. <laughs> just sort of... I can neither confirm nor deny. Okay, so um, let's uh, let's move on to sugar freezies. Right? Mm. So, uh, so this is your first range of products, and then yes. recently you've launched sugar freezies, which have gone like wildfire. Mm. Like, what was the process and the impetus there, and, and what's the growth been like? Yeah, it's been pretty wild because um, no one was doing it in the market. There was no sugar-free icy poles, um, or naturally sweetened sugar-free icy poles in Australia. So it was, it was, you know, once you start doing one product, so Nakalot was there, we built a really good customer base, we were engaging with our customer base, and then once summer came around, we started getting emails from our customers saying, can you please do a sugar-free icy pole? There's none for my kids, or mm. you know, there's two million diabetics in Australia, so, you know, they can't eat. Um, things with sugar in it so the market was 
it was already there. So then I sat and thought, okay, what is our brand philosophy? And our brand philosophy was about doing things that are 100% natural, doing things that taste great. Mm-hmm. And you know, with that, I thought, all right, well, how hard can it be? So to, to your point about would I have done it if I'd realised, probably not now. Um, just it, it, I thought, like with everything, how hard can it be? But there was no one who could even make the product in Australia. So we had to learn about how to bring machines in from overseas, operations, how to actually work with partners from an operating point of view, what to put in contracts, which are very different to, you know, you, you learn these things yeah. through making the mistakes. So put all those pieces together and, you know, um, came up with the idea, came up with the product and realised very quickly that to pull, pull it off, I had to have a supermarket. Mm-hmm. So to get the machinery um, to get the machinery and we need certain volumes and the only ways we could get those volumes was with uh, one of the majors. Yeah, and I think it's, it's really interesting. I've, I've been very interested in the story about how hard it actually is mm. to make a product like Icy Balls, right? Yeah. And when you were talking about having to bring in this machine that cost half a million dollars, yeah. I, I think actually digging into that a little bit it would be very interesting because yeah, you wouldn't know on the way in and you now yeah. certainly have learned. So, yeah. so investment in the machinery, mm-hmm. investment in the contracts or the partnerships have been yeah. big. What else have been the, the sort of things you've only realised as you've gotten into it? Uh, it? A lot of it would be around the ensuring that you get the best machine or the best operations you can possibly have. Because once you scale something up and you're starting to deliver in the millions mm. as opposed to in the thousands, it just everything compounds exponentially. Yeah. And, you know, something that seems like something you just brush over has become big issues for us that have cost a lot of money to rectify. So yeah. it's sort of, um, the yeah, that's one thing. Also having good working relationships with your suppliers because when you go into something and you're scaling up to that degree, you, you're not gonna be able to have planned for everything. So mm-hmm. you need to have the ability to move pretty fast on certain things that you just didn't know about. Yeah. So that's a really big thing. So in your negotiations, don't be greedy, like leave some on the table for the fact that there might be mm. a, um, that leave some on the table for the fact that you're gonna get some stuff wrong. So yep. you need to be able to go back and have a proper conversation with your partners about, look, it's, you know, I didn't try and screw you down super hard at the beginning because, you know, but, you know I was trying to build a relationship and, and now this is why, because I need some help with this. <laughs> <laughs> I really need help. You know, I just really need help. And, yep. and if you've just been a real, if you've just been super hard from the beginning and they've got no incentive to help you, then you're in trouble. Yeah. You know? And the reputation with the supermarkets is the most important thing, because if you, don't deliver like you say you're going to, it burns them, it burns you, and when you come in to try and do new, new products, they just look at you, it's not you, you've been more trouble than you're worth. Yeah. So how many uh, how many sugar freezes have you sold? Jeez. North of about seven million sticks. That is a lot of sticks. Yeah. So and, how, and how long's it been, how long's it been on shelves? Um, since September last year. Okay, so that's, oh wow. So that's yeah. in uh, October, November, December. That's like five months, four or five months. Yeah, about four or five months. Oh, probably, it's probably a bit left. Around, around, probably around the six mark. I'm thinking about what we've like actually put orders in for, which yep. is a bit different. Six or seven, I think that's pretty yeah. close enough. Okay, uh, and so, well, are you surprised that it's been such big volume? Is, are the supermarket surprised? Or is everyone like, oh, that's not, nothing serious yet? Look, it's not. It's still a very small part of the industry. We're mm-hmm. just sort of, you know, scratching, you know, scratching the surface here. But I think the, um, 
I think the potential here is really big because all the customers have loved the fact that we've got something that tastes good that the kids love mm -hmm. and they can actually have. So, you know, in our first year, you know, we've had some a lot of issues that have constrained our our supply. We didn't have time to, well, and so I think in our coming year we're we're poised for some good growth. Mm -hmm. And so that's getting your supply chain right. Uh, new machinery, like upgraded facilities. Yeah, like it's yeah, we're gonna have to do some updates, mm -hmm. which is gonna be interesting and sort of a new challenge as well. You know, getting you know the equipment finance and you know getting the partnerships and things like that. So that's a it's almost like redoing again what I had to do a full year ago mm. to you know, um, you know working with the partners. So trying to get the partners to you know, just getting all the all the chess pieces, putting them in place, and it was that's another interesting learning. Like. I thought, oh great! I just have to do this once, and then everything's fine. It's like, no, just, every year, it's just you keep on redoing it, and it's just like we're getting bigger, so I go again. And yeah, yeah. we're well, going through different stages of growth, and the, and the problems might have similarities, but they're at a different level. They're just at a different level. Yeah. yeah. So uh, talking about the supermarkets, what are some of the, the particular challenges or opportunities of working with supermarkets? Because if you're making a product that's for a lot of people, the goal getting the supermarkets. What are some yes. of the things you've learned along the way there? Um, have some data before you go in. So, you know, the, the buyers will give you an idea of what, uh, you know, they, they might give you an indication of some volumes, and mm -hmm. uh, yet, until you actually have your own information, which might be costly, but there's plenty of ways, yeah. you know, you can get it. So what kind of data? Um, the type of volumes that go through the industry, the mm -hmm. type of margin expectations that the supermarkets might have for the specific category, mm -hmm. You know the expectations of what type of marketing support you have to give them, um, which comes, which actually, yeah, when they put their model down, you know, um, of how the costings work, it might say, all right, well, this is what your gross margin, this is the, the gross margin we need to be, but then there's plus, 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 plus. So mm. basically, you need to have an idea on that bottom right-hand side of the spreadsheet after you've added everything else in, mm. what that margin actually is. Mm. So. Because if you go in not knowing those things, A, you look pretty foolish, and B, you're going to get taken for a ride. Yeah. And so it's about understanding that because you, you can't really go backwards. You can't next year say, oh, I need to margin back. Yeah. So how, how did you go about that process of finding out the information from a, a relatively newcomer to the industry? Mm. Like how did you figure it out? Um, networks. Yeah, yeah. So just other people who you've met along the way who are already working in the supermarkets, they might know some people. There might be some other groups that might already be buying data because they're a bigger company. Mm -hmm. it, it was really helpful through the networks I had, just leaning on people who you know I've done favors for before, and just mm -hmm. yeah, that was super helpful. Yeah. Um, and you know, from a data point of view, you don't need to have it all. You just have to have a rough ballpark so you know that. <laughs> You, you know you can walk in with confidence mm -hmm. as opposed to you, know, you never want to be in a position where you're asking them what the margin expectation is. <laughs> How much do you think you should pay me for this? <laughs> but it's pretty common though. That's also yeah. kind of, it's a common starting point, you know, is uh, because it's sort of a, they'll be kind of upfront with yeah. you because, you know, there is a category average. So it, but it's, um, the other thing is, as bad as the buyer, as, as people might make the buyers out to be, they also want to have, they want to help some of this, you know, if, if you're a large player doing, you know, 500 million bucks through there, yes, it's a very different conversation to if mm. you're a startup, because they, they need innovation. Mm. So they okay. need innovation from a reputable um, supplier. So we, we wouldn't have been able to get our sugar freeze in had we not had our experience with Naked Life, which were on the shelf at Woolworth Metro, Woolworth Metro. so we were already 
Yeah, the first thing I said when I pitched into um, both Woolies and Coles Sugar Freezies was, we're a known entity. We're not mm. just someone coming with an idea. We've got a track record with this. We've got, and that was the very first thing that I said to get them, you know, to change the paradigm from, oh, here we go, just another startup. So you need to really go in hard and, and push your credentials that you're not just, you know, you are someone who is a safe pair of hands. Yeah. So I think that's been a common thread through this conversation is yeah, about building, it <laughs> well, it's building on, it's, it's building on success as you go. Yeah. Right? So you're not swinging for the fences right from the outset, but no. you're, you're building, you're getting good suppliers, and you're getting some distributors, and you're getting more, then you're going to the bigger guys, and you're building on one product onto another one. So mm -hmm. putting those building blocks in place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So now, sort of looking at the business um, that you've been building up over the last couple of years, what are some of the lessons that you've learned or challenges, particularly around building a product-based business? said the word operations a lot. Um, yeah. Well, there's that, that, that that operations. Is, What's that operations to you? Operations to me is the system that takes um, all the different uh, raw materials you might have. So we might have 50 different raw materials, for example, each of which you know go into a formula that need to get made somewhere, then that needs to get transported to the next place, and that needs to get warehoused somewhere. Mm -hmm. that, you have got to get your orders coming in. That needs to be needs to be translated to you know the pick and pack and delivery and all of those things all the way through to how many do I think I'm going to make next month mm -hmm. and next you know all of those elements and the system which is that is something that is a constant um, a constant battle mm. because every time you think you're on top of it, you grow a little bit and whatever you're doing before is now somewhat redundant because you now, like, the word exponential comes into mind. So, you know, we'll probably launch, I think, three or four more products. That is, our current system is now going to have three times the complexity going mm. through it just, be, just through that one, they're launching three new products. Yeah. and. You look at that and it's like, oh no. <laughs> so how, um, getting very specific, how do you manage those operations? What systems do you use? Yeah, really, really good point. Like we've got the, the zero from an accounting yep. um, side of things. From a, like a stock management point of view, so the you know, supply, you know, our, I'll, I'll preface that. The biggest issue we could ever have is running out of a raw material because that might take a month to order Therefore, if you don't have that, if you've made a mistake, you're down a production for a full month because you can't get it. So, yeah, that, wow. so that there and tracking that is critical. And you can either work with your suppliers or your manufacturers to do that, or you can do it yourself. Mm -hmm. So you can use, there's a sort of an inventory management software called Unleashed. So that's something that we're just migrating into. And that's right. really helpful because that links into your zero and you know exactly at any one point in time, all your, the materials you have on hand and how mm. to actually run that. So. You can put those systems in, but then you need to have the actual meetings and the interactions with your staff to make sure they stay, they can stay on top of that. So mm -hmm. our production needs to be able to understand, um, they need to be able to understand a, a decent forecast, keeping a safety level of stock there, because mm -hmm. you don't want to be in the position where you, know, you put on a promotion and, and Woolworths rings up and says, cool, we need an extra 30 pallets next week. And it's like... Oh, imagine, no. imagine the highs and lows. You'd be like, "Woohoo! Oh no, we don't have any left." <laughs> oh, but it's exactly that. And so, it's sort of, yeah, understanding. But having the system to know how much safety stock you should even know. Mm -hmm. And I know this is pretty granular, but it's it's actually just really critical to know yep. that there's all these elements that have to play. That going back to what you were saying before, you know, would I've gotten into it had I known all of this? Well, the first first hire would have had would probably wouldn't have been a marketing person. It would have been a production and operations person. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that's a because uh, once you get that set up and set up in a scalable manner, then you can just sort of, you know, that then takes 
so much, so many of the headaches away that I would have otherwise had that took me out of marketing anyway. So, yeah. you know, had yeah, I, I gotcha. done that at the beginning, I would have been able to focus on what I was good at, which yeah. was that stuff. But instead, I've been in production and and yeah. uh, operations. So, and who's who's spending most of their time in that area now? Yeah, so we've got um, we've got a sort of a director of operations who's coming back from attorney leave, and we've um, got someone who's working across sort of. Um, uh, across uh, administration and operations, yep. so I've sort of stepped into the operations role at the moment, um, which is kind of important because we we were building an unknown um, supply chain, so yep. to speak. So I had to just be all over that, and so until that kind of became calm, which it is now, I had to be quite into it. But yep. now I've transitioned that to you know someone who can now run the system I put in place. Yeah, well, that's a common theme that's come out of quite a few of the podcast interviews that we've done. It's like when you're forging new ground, mm. really, as the entrepreneur, you've got to do it yourself first. You do. Because you're figuring it out. Yep. You, there's no way you can kind of task someone to go and figure out this unknown. So you get in there yourself, figure it out, start to kind of document and systemize, and then you start bringing in the people. 100%. Even if you brought in someone who was a gun at that specific thing, they don't know the insides and outs of, of your cash levels and, and, mm. and, and sort of and stuff like that. So they'll bulletproof the system, mm. but you might not have the money to be able to run at a, a level of stock holding that they might tell you to have yeah, because they you. might go, oh, cool, well, you need to hold three months worth of stock. Well, that might be a million bucks you need to go find, which, yeah. you know, so you need to make sure you've got your fingerprints all over the system. Yeah, it's kind of like doing the um, minimum viable product version of a supply chain. 100%. That's, yeah. oh, that's a really good way to put it because you just, you, you know what you need because you know you know what your next two years will look like in your head. So, you know, and you might not have articulated that properly, but you can sort of build that in yourself mm -hmm. as you go through it. So it's a, and once you've got something that works, you then have, it's just much easier to just, you know, scale that as long as you've got some options in to scale it up, you know, five times should that need to happen. Mm -hmm. So now looking forwards at the growth that you've got coming up, mm -hmm. what are the major levers of growth for you? Um, for us, it's being able to get it, um, what I call the be everywhere strategy for both the, the drinks and the, uh, and the icy poles. So, you know, the retailer that you, um, the retailer that you sell it from, I used to think that, that was, that's where you get your, that's, you know, the be all and end all. But in actual mm. fact, it's all the small places all on the ground that actually becomes your branding and your marketing mm. that becomes important. So, you know, if, if I look at the icy poles, um, you know, the all the sports clubs, all the canteens, all the swimming pools, all those little corner shops that, you know, that, that where you can get a little bit of branding there, so people actually try them individually and then realise you buy them from the supermarket. So across both drinks and icy poles, you know, putting, you know, putting twenty percent of your rev of your top line into marketing, I think as you're starting off is not the way to go about it because mm. it's unless you can buy it everywhere, then there's no use putting in anything into marketing. So instead, you invest in getting it. Uh in a whole bunch of different places that people can buy. You're maybe not making a huge amount. You're not making yes. much from the pool store, no. but people are seeing it and then going and buying from the supermarket. Oh, exactly. If, if you look at what you know, the, the what they say about advertising, you know, you need to you need to see something a certain amount of times, so then you you can trust it. Mm. We well, can either do that by advertising, or we can do that by having your products in places where, with it. Where, you know, with yeah, if I look at this, if, if you go past lots of different fridges and you start seeing it, you start building familiarity with it, and I haven't spent anything in marketing. I've just basically instead mm. put that marketing dollars into having it ranged at different places. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it's pretty counterintuitive, I think, actually. Most people wouldn't think about, they think about, I need to be investing in marketing, 20% of my revenue is in marketing, mm. get in front of everyone, 
maybe on social media, billboards, yeah. and, and then people yeah. buy. But that's not the strategy you've done. No, I, and it just no, it, it's not because I think if you're going smack in the supermarkets, yeah, that's kind of important. But then you're beholden to them. So if you're not, if you haven't built up a ground up business then you're in a bit of trouble if you know when it comes to renegotiation so mm. you know if they might turn around and you, you need to be able to say well there's no better option than us because we are everywhere yeah. so you can try someone else but everyone's going to demand us yeah and so it's, it's underpinning that that then underpins a very um sustainable business yeah any uh new products on the horizon that you'd love to share with us now lots of new products keeping the them under wraps what do we you do got we, we've got another tonic coming out so this is sugar-free 100 natural tonic so we'll uh we've got a uh we're, we're oh, talk about it, like an elderflower tonic as well as a lemon myrtle tonic yep. so um which is fantastic as well as um a uh, a few more in this range here which i won't go into at the moment because we're into development but we've also got some more flavors for sugar freezies coming out and a few more variants of that um you know there's a lot of sugar even in um is it, even in things you don't like that you'd think were healthy such as juice there's yep. a lot of sugar in there so mm. there's a lot of ways that we can um take some of that sugar out while still providing the benefits. Great, okay, awesome. So a lot of product extension and building on the success you have so far. Now, I've got a couple of questions here to wrap us up. Yep. It's a rapid fire minute of questions. Okay. I haven't seen them, you haven't seen them. We try and get through these in one minute. You ready All to make right. it happen? Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. If you were one of your drinks flavors, which one would you be? I'd be the lemon, lemonade with cucumber because it's pretty familiar, but it's got a nice twist on it. Good answer. A little bit cheesy. Good answer. <laughs> what advice would you give yourself when you first started in business? Oh, wow. All right. Just uh, stop screwing around and actually get in and do it. Good one. Uh, what are you overly competitive about other than table tennis? <laughs> Everything. Um, overly competitive. Uh, Getting something, getting the things tasting good is, yep. is what I'm super competitive on, yeah. Well, I think you're pretty advantageous. It in your is, position. it yep. is, okay. yeah. What's a common misconception about being an entrepreneur? I mean, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I get like, oh, that's so cool in my head. I'm like, oh, really? Uh, Why, okay. What makes it not cool? Um, the fact that, that the non-entrepreneurs get to go home and sleep at night and get a good night's rest. <laughs> yeah, I'm too tired to be cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, and finally, for business owners who are taking on massive competitors and well-known brands with yeah. their product or service, what's your advice for them to make it happen? Pick the thing that they're not doing well and focus everything on that. So you're not going to win hitting them straight on. So if they've got a bad reputation in the market for for not doing good, then focus on doing good. If they've got a reputation of, of, of not being healthy, then be, then focus on that super healthy part. But just make sure you're never taking them head on at what their strengths are. Mm. Well, that is amazing words of advice. David Andrew, thank you very much for Thanks coming too. on. Really Thanks enjoyed for having the conversation. Me. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on the Make It Happen Show. Cool. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of the Make It Happen Show. If you love what you heard, hit subscribe so you'll always be the first to know when a new episode lands. Also, leave us a review. Tell us what you love and who you'd like to appear on the show next and we'll do what we can to make that happen. We speak to a successful entrepreneur every week, but if you want to keep the conversation going, join our Facebook group, The Business Class. It's an active community for entrepreneurs and business owners to connect and learn from one another. 
You can also connect with us at The Entourage on all the usual places. That's Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That's all from us for now. Whatever you've got on your plate this week, we hope we've given you what you need to make it happen.